0: I am a bought man. I'm owned by God. Now that gives you a great internal core value that I'm here as one that will serve, but I'm only owned by one. Do you live as though I'm, I'm the property of deity?
1: To those who would say, once saved, always saved, I've got my spiritual fire insurance, we would say 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Join us next. Hi there, and welcome to Truth for Today with Pastor Phil Howard, the ministry of Valley Bible Church, right here in Hercules. Our time today will take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as we begin winding down our series in 2 Corinthians. Today's message is simply entitled, The Peril of Self-Deception. And it's easy to do. We can find ourselves thinking that all is well and all is right, spiritually speaking, in our lives. To which Paul would say, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. What does he mean by that? Well, let's talk about that next. Next. Here's Pastor Phil with today's program.
0: I want to speak on how to go from being good to being great. In our Bible study with Chip Ingram in our home Bible studies, he's been developing this theme, how to be great. A lot of us are just good, and some of us are just lousy. And sometimes we don't even want to be great. We've gotten in love with what we are. But you might be destined to be a lot more than what you're living right now. God may have greater things for you. Jim Collins wrote the uh, book that's becoming a classic for the business world, management, how to have a good company, to go to a great company. And he has that famous analogy that's used all the time. Are you on the bus? Where do you sit on the bus? And Jim Collins has become famous through that book, Good to Great. And in the midst of reading the Gospels, I was struck by this, that Jesus gives a formula of how to go from good to being great. I never thought he would even address such a theme. Look, if you will, in the chapter. I, I will say once again, I've neglected the Gospels most of my ministry. I've stayed in the epistles. When I want to teach the Christian life, I went to Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, the epistles. I never, hardly ever thought of the life of Christ as a model for our life, living because I saw Christ under the law. I saw uh, a dispensation that the Spirit had not yet been given to believers. And so I, but as I read Matthew 28 again, he said, Go and disciple the nations. And then I asked myself, What's your curriculum? What are we to teach them? Romans hasn't been written. Galatians hasn't been written. Corinthians has not been written. Revelation has not been written. And everybody's talking about discipleship. Discipleship. Teach them what? Teach them everything I taught you and teach them to obey it. Do you ever start with the Gospels to teach people how to live for God? Something besides the Sermon on the Mount. I've been outlining all the lessons. I'm up to about 50 lessons from the Gospels that I never started people with before. And so I've been reading over and over the Gospels because i like to know more about Jesus. You can study Chronicles all you want and know all the Philistines and name them by name. I want to know Christ. And some of you are full of revelation. You ought to be full of the revealer. Christ. The book of Revelation is about Christ. The epistles are about Christ. The gospels are about Christ. Are you Christ-like? Why don't you find out what he said? And so in my reading, I come to this Mark passage. First, look at the flow of Mark uh, 10. Look, he starts out telling them how you can leave a marriage partner. He talks about divorce. And he said, basically, divorce is against everything God has ever said he wants his people to do. It happens, but he's giving. Among the rabbis, they had different views. One view is you could divorce your wife for anything. The rabbinic literature: if she burnt the bread, you could divorce her. Literally, it was in rabbinic literature. You just and the man had the right of divorce, not the woman. And so he just say, "This is over." Then there was the other school that was more conservative, and that school would say, "No." We we ought to stay married. There's few exceptions. And Christ finally said, the only exception that would break up a marriage and give a right of remarriage was marital unfaithfulness. You form another covenant. You break covenant with your wife. You formed a one-flesh union with someone else. You have that right to remarry, and we advocate people forgive and go on. But he deals with that, and then the matter of little children come up. The little children want access to him. The disciples despise him, push them away. Jesus rebukes them. There are no little people in God's eyes. There are no little people in God's eyes. And he said, unless you become like a child, and he did not mean childish. Many of us are much of that. But he means childlike, which is humility and trust. A child trusts normally. They just trust. Then he talks about a rich young ruler that basically, and he says he loved this young man. But he gave him this option. To follow me, I'm going to test whether you would follow me. And to follow me, I know what you love the most in life is money. So I'm going to say this. If your eternal destiny is based upon me or money, which one will you trust? And the rich young ruler said, I'll take money. And the principle is this. If you won't follow Jesus in time, you won't follow him for eternity. If you're not naming him now, you won't claim him then. Right now is the time to follow. So the boy goes away. And Jesus felt grieved for him because he wouldn't make the trade. I'd rather keep what I've got and lose Christ than to give up anything to follow him. And that's what we call cheap discipleship today. Discipleship that costs nothing. Discipleship that is cheap and is American and is a thousand miles from the Bible. Quit being cheap Christians. Quit being American Christians. Become biblical Christians. Then in the middle of this, Christ for the third time mentions that he's going to go to the cross. And the disciples are so amazed that in his body language, it says they were astonished and afraid. And commentators said there must have been something about the body language of Christ that is like in full gait. I must go to Jerusalem. Let's go. Let's go. And, and say, so, wait, you just said that's where you're going to be killed. How can you go headlong into it? I must go. The the clock is ticking. It's my time. They've tried to stone me. They've tried to throw me over mountains. They've tried one time, but God's time is now. I'm running towards the cross. And they were astonished. And then, and then, we get this request of James and John. James, who writes the book of James, the first pastor of Jerusalem. John, who writes the gospel of John. First John, second John, third John, book of Re- This John, they both say, we are totally blind and insensitive to what your assignment is. We know your Messiah. All we care about is reigning with you. We're not going to sympathize with you. Because they totally skipped over the cross. They still didn't get it. I just said I'm going to the cross. You want me to give you a position in my cabinet in the reign of Christ. And then he asked them a question. Do you think you could drink the cup I'm going to drink? Meaning suffering. Uh, Can you be baptized with my baptism that is enter into my experience? And they said, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And he said, you will, James, you're going to be beheaded in Jerusalem. And John, you're going to be exiled on the Isle of Patmos. You will taste my experience. You will drink this cup. But for me to give you positions in the kingdom just left and right because you want it, no, no, no. I'm not giving away positions. By the way, I like to tell you men how to become great. And it won't be sitting on thrones, it will be by waiting on tables and changing your whole outlook on what you are. And this is going to be radical. And four things, he said, I want to change in you. Number one, I want you to think of authority, not as Gentile authority. Two, You must become servants. Greatness is servanthood. Thirdly, you must become slaves of God. Greatness is knowing you're owned by God. Then I want you to sacrifice yourself on the sacrifice of the cross, even as the Son of Man will give his life to ransom. And then the question before all of us, Will you surrender yourself to such greatness? Uh, The Jews knew something about Gentile power. They went into captivity in 606 to Assyria. Assyria took the northern tribes, 10 of them, mean to them. The Assyrians were the most brutal uh, killers of the ancient Near East. They often stacked skulls at the entrance of a city To remind the citizens, so it will be to you if you don't bow. They were cruel. They were vicious. The Jews knew something about Gentile power. Then 586, Nebuchadnezzar takes them up into Babylon for 70 years. And let me tell you, they ravished the city. They ravished the women. They dashed infants against the wall. They knew what Gentile power was. Then it was Medo-Persia. Then it was Greece. And now they've lived their whole lives under the heel of Rome. That taxes you. Taxes you. And beats you. Can tell you whatever. They run Palestine. And he said, you shall not in my kingdom use Gentile authority to rule among my people. I forbid it. Gentile power was... You do what I say. You exist for my agenda. You do what I tell you. Biblical authority, listen, biblical authority is always, and biblical leadership is always for the benefit of the led. Shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep, they don't tell the sheep to lay down their life for the shepherd. God said to, in his word to Peter, Peter, tell the elders, do not lord it over the flock, but prove to be examples to them, serving willingly, not for money, not with reluctance, but do it for the purpose of my kingdom. Paul said, I have authority, 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 13, twice he told the Corinthians, who despised his apostolic authority. He said, I do have authority, but it's for your edification. Twice he said that. It's to build you up. It's for your benefit. And so every man that leads anything in this church, if he's doing it like Christ says, you're leading something for the benefit of the lead. Not for your benefit. That's why it's hard to get leadership in the church. We get a thousand opinions. We get few God-given leaders. Men can run companies that can't lead in the church. They're too selfish. They are used to hiring and firing and being in charge. And in the church, you don't get that authority. There's only one boss. His name is Jesus you got to pay the price to be the boss. He paid it. The rest of us work for him. He's the boss. You like to call me the boss when you're mad and ticked. I'm not the boss. He's the boss. It's his church. And if you don't love his church, you don't love him. Everybody likes to pick on the church. The church ain't doing this. Church isn't this. Church, hey, why don't you tell Jesus? He bought us. Matter of fact, he even bought you. We're stuck with you, and you're stuck with us. Let's enjoy each other. Huh? i talk about God's church. Do you love God's church? God's church, God's redeemed, fallible, flawed people, saved only by the blood of the Lamb. He goes on to say... Uh, I want you to become servants if you want to be great. And servanthood, even in the time of Jesus, was a despised vocation outlook. The Greeks said no noble man should ever serve. Listen to what they said. They said in Greek eyes, this is Kittle's dictionary, serving is not very dignified. Ruling and not serving is proper to a man. The formula of the sophists, the philosophers. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And this word for serve is our word for deacon. It's our word for minister. It's our word for any kind of service rendered in the body of Christ. And they said, you can't be happy if you've got to serve. So when they get to the upper room, they all look at each other, look at each other, look at each other. Hey, I ain't washing your feet. I'm a Jew. And Jews didn't wash feet. They hired Gentile pagans to wash feet in their festivals. And all of a sudden, the king of the Jews is washing their feet. You can hear the water being poured and the shock. They're so shocked. Peter says, by George, you're not washing my feet. My king is not washing my feet. I will wash your feet, Peter, or you'll have nothing to do with me. I'm not coming like another Nero. I'm not coming like Caligula. I'm not coming like Alexander the Great. I'm coming as the humble servant of God. That's the way Isaiah painted him, the suffering servant of God. This is your Savior I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your boss and your company. I'm talking about your Savior. This is how he acted. And then the Jews, what did they think about serving Listen to what Hess says. Though Judaism in the time of Jesus knew and practiced social responsibilities to help the poor, it was mainly by giving alms. It was never by doing service. You paid somebody. You'd give the alms at the temple. Pay somebody to do that. I'm not going to get my hands there. I, I, no, no. Uh, that's against me. I, I'm not. I, I serve long enough in Egypt. I'm not going to serve anybody else. Lowly service was beneath the dignity of a free man. And Jesus is telling them, you want to be great? You got to become a servant. I love what Manson said. In the kingdom of God, service is not a stepping stone to nobility. It is nobility. Nobility. The only kind of nobility recognized in Christ's kingdom is servanthood. The diatrophies that wants the preeminence, the man that has to have strokes and coddled and carried on beds of ease. This is not the Christ model. This is Gentile model. This is a pagan world model, not the model Christ gave. If you want to be great, you got to become a servant. Then he says something that is absolutely astounding and can insult you. He goes on to say you must become his slave. But before I, I leave this being a servant, I read a line where Gandhi said that his grandfather one time told him, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who take the work, and the others who take the credit. Two kinds. Dwight L. Moody, the famous Billy Graham evangelist of the 1800s, used to hold a pastor's conference north of Chicago. It was in Northfield, and that's where he had his Bible conferences and All that, of course, he starts Moody Bible Institute. But he's the Billy Graham of the 1800s, goes to Europe. They loved him in England. And and here was a man, here was a man, was nothing but a shoe salesman. Shoe salesman. And uh, was so good. He he never knew he could teach the Bible. Uh, He ran a Sunday school in Hell's Kitchen, uh, Chicago. And he paid a man, he rented a bar, and he paid a man to be a Sunday school teacher for ruffian little hoodlums in Chicago. He shows up one week, and this man doesn't show up. So Moody's left to teach the lesson. And God used him so mightily, he never looked back. From that day on, he became a preacher of the gospel when all these ruffian boys knelt as he gave his first Sunday school lesson, and they knelt to receive Christ. But at that Northville school, he had these pastors from Europe. And uh, uh, one night, he was going around the conference, and he noticed down the hallway, all the European pastors had put their shoes out down the hall, as was the custom in England. And what they did in England, they had hall servants that polished your shoes. And Moody sees all these shoes. There's no servant designated for this conference. What does he do but gather them all up? Takes them to his room, and he starts polishing shoes into the midnight hour. And all of a sudden, an unexpected friend of his came by, or we would have never known the story. And he asks Moody, what are you doing? He said, I'm being the hall servant for my brothers from Europe. You call that servanthood. Unseen, stooping. Then he goes on to say, hey, you must become a slave of God. And It's a Greek word doulos. And slave really has this meaning. I, I think with African Americans, they could always go back to American slavery. Remember, this term was used of Jesus in Philippians two. He said, "I took on the form of a slave." I'm not talking about American slave. I'm talking about I become the slave of God's will. He owns me. I volunteer to leave a throne and come to a manger to be a slave to the will of God. And he comes. He said, "I'm owned. I'm owned." And that's a good question to ask yourself. Who owns you? Are you owned by God? Now, you aren't owned by God, just fiat. You're owned by God by what the Son of God did. He said, I'm going to ransom you to make you my own. It's going to cost me something to make you my own. But there's two ways to see this word. Servanthood is a horizontal relationship. And we need to get this straight. I'm your servant but I'm not your slave. Do you get the difference? Maybe you don't. Slave is a vertical relationship. I am a bought man. I'm owned by God. Now that gives you a great internal core value that I am here as one that will serve, but I'm only owned by one. I'm not owned by the highest donor in this church, and I'm not owned by the elders, and I'm not owned by this one, I'm not owned by some political party, I'm owned by a risen Savior, only He purchased me. And you too, are you His man? Do you live as though I'm I'm the property of deity?
1: And this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard So stop by truthfortodayradio.org or simply give us a call, 855-833-9864. Again, you can reach us at 855-833-9864.